Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. All roads in the war on vaping lead back to the United States. The U.S. is ground zero for spurious research, malevolent messaging, wrong-headed regulation, and the millions of dollars dedicated each year to destroying anything positive about vaping. Even so, the pushback by vaping advocates in the U.S. is strong and resolute. Joining us today to offer an insider's perspective on vaping advocacy in the United States is Allison Buchner, Vice President at the AVM, the American Vapor Manufacturers Association, President of the South Carolina Vapor Association, Fellow of the World Vapors Alliance, and she's Marketing and Communications Director for eSig Charleston, a vape shop retail chain with 16 locations in South Carolina. Allie, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Brent. It's good to see you. You know, I have to say, Ali, that it's quite the list of vaping advocacy groups and activities <laughs> you're involved with. And I still haven't, I haven't mentioned that you're also the co-host of a weekly podcast on vaping called The Wednesday Night Live Show. How do you fit all this in? I really don't know. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, I... I have a really hard time saying no, especially when it comes to vaping advocacy. I try to take every opportunity that comes my way. So um, I try to just pace myself, take one task at a time and and try to focus um, you know, my attention where it's needed, when it's needed. So how did you get involved with vaping advocacy? I assume, of course, you were a smoker. Yes. Um, so I work for ESIC Charleston. I've been there for January. It will be 11 years. Um, I did smoke. Um, when I was 30, I was diagnosed with a blood clot, not something that 30 year olds normally have to deal with. Um, six month round of blood thinners, having my blood drawn every week to see my levels tested. Um, and on my hematologist suggestion, tried everything that was out there, patches, didn't work for me. Gum gave me an awful sores in my mouth. Um, Chantix made me crazy. So, um, you know, after, you know, getting over that whole six month round of, you know, blood thinners and you, you know, life happens, stress happens, you kind of forget the position that you were in and, and what puts you there. And, and you go back to smoking, which is exactly what I did. Um, I moved from New York to South Carolina and, started working for a company and and they were like, Hey, you smoke, try this. And that was literally my last cigarette was, you know, quitting with just a disposable tank and a 650 battery and pina colada and 18 milligram. And, and so when you start to see this under attack, especially, you know, being with them as long as I have been and seeing the customers that you've helped and it, you know, you can't really just sit down and not say something. And I started a Twitter and, and here we are. <laughs> Well, it's excellent. So we've all heard, Ali, the expression about America, that it's the home of the brave and land of the free. But when it comes to vaping, how free really is it? I mean, it's not, especially when public health, you know, these, you know, entities like the FDA CTP is completely ignoring the American adult users and kind of brushing them off as anecdotes with their true stories about how they quit smoking. Um and still hell-bent on, on banning these products that adults are actually using, you know, to continue to be successful. So I don't, I wouldn't say that's very free at all. They certainly seem to disregard those personal stories and examples when they always want to have things at population level. But then when there's population level data, they seem to ignore that too. 
Yeah, they seem to ignore everything, including the science. So, I mean, what do you do when you're in a predicament like that? You you have to raise your voice and you have to speak out and contact your local, you know, representatives and try to do as much as you can to to stop it, at least at a state level, since the federal level is is obviously unwilling to listen to reason and, and also to science. Is it fair to say that vaping is under assault in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. I think it has been. I mean, it, when I'm sitting at home at night and I'm watching Hulu and an ad pops up, you know, from the Truth Initiative and it's, you know, some insanely ridiculous, you know, concept of, you know, of, you know, someone fishing a vape out of the toilet to use it and and, and worms crawling around in your face from vaping. Um, I mean, it, it makes you realize that these things are funded, you know, by, you know, these organizations and, and that they just don't care about the messaging being accurate. They, they it's all for the kids, but it, nobody's really thinking about the adults at all. There's an epidemic spreading. It can expose your lungs to acrolein, which can cause irreversible damage. It's not a parasite, not a virus. It's vaping. Times during class, and I tell her, "Do talk to him," and it's like, oh, ew. What's the biggest source of animus towards vaping? I think it's, I would say anything Bloomberg Bucks touch, right, is, is, you know, is the main source, but it's a combination, you know, it's a combination of the truth initiative, of the truth campaign, of, you know, the Bloomberg money, of PAVE, of the CTP and the CDC themselves. Is tobacco control's hostility towards vaping irrational? Absolutely. I think that the way that they are treating vaping is the way that they should have been treating cigarette smoking all along. And, and I, and I know means, you know, mean to say, oh, that should be in a prohibition stance, because I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Anything that is prohibited typically goes to a, an unregulated, dangerous, illicit market. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't understand why it's all about nicotine now and, 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 potentially a nicotine free society when you have, you know, approvals for low nicotine cigarettes, but not one single approval for an open system e-liquid. It almost seemed like uh, like a light switch was thrown with regard to nicotine all of a sudden becoming the big enemy as opposed to, say, combustible smoking. Right. All the other chemicals that are in a cigarette. Yeah, those are fine, but just lower the nicotine and you can get a PMTA approval, which I think is is ridiculous. And I think everyone else that actually is paying attention is also saying, how is this getting a PMTA approval and nothing else is? Yeah. Let me ask you, um, you know, in our interviews that we do out there with people who are not from the U S and they're vaping, uh, advocates, there's a certain amount of like, everything comes from the U S <laughs> it's kind of born in the U S you ever feel Sorry. that sense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that has a lot. I constantly apologize to, you know, my friends out in, you know, other parts of the world. And I'm like, I'm really sorry that we started this. I, 
I wish that there was something we could do to fix it. You know, um, FDA, you know, CTP has this, you know, history of saying that they're going to do something and that they're going to, you know, fix the situation and, 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 you know, fix the perception of nicotine because adults, you know, have the right to know the truth, but there, nothing's actually happened to, to do that. And, and I don't see it happening anytime soon. Ali, you're the vice president at the American Vapor Manufacturers Association. What's the story behind the AVM and what does it do? I mean, formally speaking, AVM is the leading trade association for independent vape manufacturers and businesses. Our mission is to help members navigate the horrendous gauntlet of FDA, news media, Puritan activist groups. But we also have a calling to be a voice for the the customers as well and to stand up against the forces of prohibition and moral panic. Our members are helping save lives and they're constantly vilified and trampled and 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 our customers are taking charge of their health destinies and yet they're marginalized ridiculed and deprived of their fundamental right to switch and it's unjust and scientifically deprived and and it's dishonest and and so everyone at AVM feels like we have a, a vocation to take a role and fight back let's talk a bit more about the US Food and Drug Administration because what they're doing is a bit different than most other jurisdictions around the world where instead of regulating a market, they're actually overseeing what products can be on the market in the first place, though they've kind of missed the boat a little bit on that one, but it's a different kind of an approach. And so what is the pre-market tobacco application or PMTA? So the PMTA applications um, are supposed to prove that your products are appropriate for public health and that they are safer than smoking cigarettes. And in the beginning, I think we all had a lot of faith that we could get it done. Um, I worked with the small group that Shar, who is the president of AVM, had started. Um, we all kind of worked together. We had constant contact with the FDA. They assured us that they were going to work with us, that we should just file something and that this would be acceptable to file as we continue to try to work on completing the PMTA, which is an insanely hard task to begin with. Um, you know, for my company, I filed our PMTA application. They it went into the acceptance stage and went into the filing stage. And, and I think within two weeks of getting the letter that it was in the filing stage, we got an MDO. Um, and so it was very confusing. And then the, even the representative that I had been dealing with the whole time to call me to let me know, hey, we have a letter. Is it OK to email it to you, you know, about an acceptance that changed as well? It wasn't the same person that I was dealing with anymore. So and then all of a sudden, it just some, seemed like it was a very hostile approach. Yet you see, you know, MDOs going out to, you know, or not MDOs, but issues with, you know, a PMTA submission going out to to the larger companies like Jewel and them having the opportunity to fix it and resubmit the information. And we weren't given, we were just given a blanket MDO. And, and as we all started to compare notes on our MDOs, we realized that they were all for the same denial reason. So, and it just, it's crazy because like, we obviously didn't have complete PMTAs. We didn't have all the testing done yet, but that's what we were working towards to get an acceptance to say everything you have you filed so far is sufficient. Go ahead and move into the next, you know, part of what this is. Also with COVID, FDA approved labs were not open or had major delays. So there's no way that we could have completed the testing, even if we could have afforded to do it. 
So we were trying to work with them to see if we could use other labs, if we could do bridge bridging for our testing with nicotine levels and all of that kind of went out the window and everybody just got an MDO. What about flavor bans, Allie? I mean, I know the California Institute of Flavor Ban about a year ago or so. What's been the impact of flavor bans in the U.S.? A huge illicit market. So I'm from New York. Um, most of my friends and family still live in New York. And I get messages all the time from my friends like, I'm tired of buying my my disposables from my Uber driver. This is a problem because they're still getting what they want, but they're more cautious of where they're getting it from. But at the end of the day, if that's the only place they can get it, they're going to get it. So, you know, I'm like, wait, what, your Uber driver selling you disposables? Oh, yeah. As soon as I get in, do you guys need disposables? And I'm like, really? This is, And I've heard from people that live in Australia, similar stories to this. So anytime you prohibit things that, that adults want, I think we learned this with cannabis, um, adults are going to get that. And it's much easier now to create an illicit market than it's ever been because you have things like Uber and you have the internet and Snapchat and you know you can get on there and find anybody selling anything and order it. If it's legitimate or not, that's another story. Ali, you have a ton of experience with the retail side of vaping. Are things different today at retail post all of this stuff that's going on, the flavor bans, the denials from FDA? Absolutely. Um, you know, these truth initiative campaigns that are only for the kids, well, Unfortunately, there's no disclaimer that comes across your TV that says, hey, adults, close your eyes, cover your ears. This information is not for you. And so it is getting to them, obviously. I see it all the time. And I'm not watching shows that are, you know, targeted for youth, just watching normal Hulu. And and I'm seeing them as well. So in, uh, what I do, part of my job is when we release a new product into our locations, we have an informational you know, website where we put a product write-up. So I'll put the product write-up up there. They put it into their binder, their Bible, as we call it. And that way they can learn about the products and then educate the consumers trying to buy those products. Great. that's I love doing that. I'm interested in that as well. But what I find now is the more information that I'm sending to the stores rather than information on the new products is science, debunking fears, because we're still talking about popcorn lung. Customers will come in all the time. Is this worse for me than smoking? I hear that it's worse for me than smoking. Is this going to put me in the hospital with a lung injury? So I have to constantly update them with easy to read, easy to use and share information, debunking these issues because they're so even afraid to even walk through the door and they have they hit these, they hit these employees with a million questions as soon as they get up to the counter and this is what they're asking. Allie, we last had you on the show in spring of this year to talk about the interview you and your AVM colleague Greg Conley did with Dr. Brian King, the director of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Center for Tobacco Products. It was an amazing interview, as you know. Uh, let's have a quick listen here to a soundbite. CTP has been describing teen vaping as an epidemic since 2018, um, a word that was chosen using focus groups to heighten the emotional reaction. Um, but since then, teen vaping has plummeted, and today, fewer than 3% of teens vape daily. That's not what the word epidemic means, not clinically, not scientifically, and not in common sense. So how do you expect to be taken seriously by the public as a scientific agency when you continue to use a flatly erroneous term like that? 
Yeah, so I'm, I believe you're speaking about the CDC, um, and FDA has not used that terminology to use the most recent um, uh, estimates of youth use. Um, I will say um, that I'm an epidemiologist by training, um, so I'm fully cognizant of the definition of an epidemic, um, which is unprecedented increases over what you'd expected baseline. Um, that said, I, I think um, and know that the science has shown a decline in the number of youth users, and, and that's a good thing. Um, over the past couple of years, um, we have seen declines since the peak in 2019. It's still too high. We've got two and a half million um, kids that are still using these products. And based on what we're seeing with other products among kids, including cigarettes um, and, and smokeless and, and, and others, we we can achieve those low levels as well, you know, below 2%, you know, one for 2%. Um, I do disagree with the notion that we should only be um, concerned with daily use among kids. Um, we do have research that demonstrate even infrequent use um, elicit signs and symptoms of dependency. Um, and so from um, uh, my perspective, any youth use of these products is problematic and that, you know, that's how you become a frequent user is, is there's a pathway from intermediary to frequent use. Um, but, you know, regardless, the good news is that it's coming down. I hope that that continues. We certainly have the pandemic effect, which has affected everything, right? We, we see it on a variety of health indicators. So it's interesting to see next year once, you know, kids are now back in school um, more frequently um, and there's potential social sources, whether uh, we see a change in that use. But I, I hope it continues to decline. Um, and as, as I've noted, um, you know, previously, I, I see where we can go based on the use of other products. And I'm hopeful that we can continue um, these types of, of interventions to continue to reduce use use. But it's not mutually exclusive from actions to help um, uh, continue um, to address the issue of, of um, harm reduction among adult smokers and, and getting them to quit completely. So, you so on your watch, sorry, Allison, so on your watch, uh, the FDA has decided to no longer use the term epidemic? Um, since I've started, I, I, I haven't uttered it. I'm not aware of any of my staff, um, but um, as, as far as I'm aware, um, you know, we, we have not used the term. Ali, it's such a huge get to get an interview like this. How did it come about and what did you think after it was done? Well, I can say the ball was rolling before I came into to AVM. So they were already in talks with them, constantly uh, hounding them basically to try to put something on the books. Um, when something finally did get put on the books, then it was, well, what if we change the time? What if we have this much time for Brian to speak and then this much time for questions? And we were like, absolutely not. This is what you agreed to. This is what we're doing. Are we doing nothing at all? We haven't had a voice. And then we found out, you know, that he was the one who initiated the interviews with CAVE and Truth Initiative and all of those. And so it's like, you're going to talk to us and you're going to give us our time to talk. So that, and we got it. So, and I think that was great. Um, I think the biggest thing that came out of it was, Brian King admitting that there was no youth epidemic, even though they still use that term and 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 all these organizations are still touting that as something that's you know still going on. In reality, it's not. And and he was able to admit that, which was great. Overall, do you think Dr. King was honest and fair when it came to addressing your questions? No. Um I've seen Brian King speak a few times. Um, he's very personable. He's funny. Um, he has a way of saying things without saying anything at all. So, <laughs> so he, he, he says a lot of things and it's a great thing, but he always reverts back to the youth issue 
and if it's appropriate for public health, which obviously it, at this point in time, we can see that the FDA does not consider anything that's not made by big tobacco or anything that has a flavor other than tobacco flavor um, as appropriate for public health. And I think this is a good point uh, to make the point that what is appropriate is whether or not they think teens are going to like it. Right. Yeah, I think that's the whole deciding and and it's it's crazy because going back to California, we saw 2021 filter covered an article about the the ban in San Francisco and that youth smoking actually went up because of the flavor ban. So clearly, if you're thinking about the kids, you're not taking all of the data into consideration. Let me ask you about tobacco harm reduction. Is it a concept you think that most Americans could understand? Most Americans I know. <laughs> yes. Um, most Americans, I don't think see vaping or any of the other options to quit smoking other than patches and, and things that are recommended by their doctors as harm reduction. I think, unfortunately, because of this mess that public health has created, most Americans see it as just as or equal to the harms of smoking. Is tobacco harm reduction a term used widely within vaping advocacy in the U.S.? It is between advocates, yes. Um, we do use the term tobacco harm reduction quite a lot. Um, but that being said, it's 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 between us and we understand what we're talking about. I don't think that most Americans would understand what that means without having an explanation followed by that statement. Overall, how strong is the vaping advocacy community in America? It's strong, I think. Mostly when things are wrong, when something bad is happening, you see a lot of people get active. Um, unfortunately, when you advocate for something, especially something that's constantly under attack, we need advocates to be more active year round, not just when something's happening in their state or at the federal level. You know, it's something that you should constantly be talking about. And it it, it is it is hard. Um, you know, it's a thankless job. <laughs> and and most of us that are doing it, are, like me, are not getting paid for it. Um, but we do it because it's what we're passionate about. But I do see that it takes a toll. It is, it's hard to constantly get hit in the chest and you keep trying to stand up. That's, it's definitely an issue. But when we, when people are really needed, this community is amazing, really comes together. I think that the friends that I've made that, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere have gotten me through this you know, last few years, I think they keep me sane. Um, and I, I think it's just a really great group of people, very kind and always willing to help. And 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 I guess that's the silver lining out of all of this is is finding a community like that. And and you know, they'll be lifelong friends now. Allison COP10, the conference of the parties for the WHO's framework convention on tobacco control, is coming up next month in Panama. If you had an opportunity to send a message to delegates there, what would that message be? I would want to know, you know, how they justify the hostility, the new, you know, take on on harm reduction and, you know, how you can ignore the UK's amazing success, Sweden's amazing success. Um, and, and how do you sleep at night, <laughs> you know, coming up with these ideas to do flavor bans, knowing how many people die every single day from smoking-related diseases, continue the success. This is something that you should be 
cheering on and wanting it to go as as far as it possibly can go and 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 doubling down on harm reduction rather than taking a non-scientific approach. Thank you.